As we go to God's Word together this morning, I'd like to invite you to just stand with me and let's pray that our hearts would be open to what He would say. Father, we just uh, we have so many things going on in our lives. We really want to make sure that, that we give you our total attention today. Help me, Lord, to uh, be so receptive to your spirit that I would not say or do anything that would would be against you or, or confusing to anyone. But just use uh, the words of this sermon to speak to each of our hearts and to help us uh, draw closer to you. We are so amazed by your son, Jesus. We pray today that we would, would uh, be ready to hear from you uh, through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. You know, babies are often named before they're born. Now, if we were to uh, ask Lisa and Evan, uh, if we were asked any of the couples, uh, maybe uh, Chinadum and Agnes, uh, uh, you know, got new babies around. Uh, how or when does this happen, you know, that a baby is named before it's ever born? Parker's back there in the back. You know, when a couple first finds out they're expecting a child, they can hardly wait to figure out a name. And they may not know if it's a girl or a boy. Some couples choose to know ahead of time. Some say, no, we want to wait and be surprised at the end. Uh, so they, they pick out both a boy's name and a girl's name just so they're covered either way, you know. And when, when other people greet a pregnant woman, they'll say, what you going to name your baby? That's one of the things we're all just curious about. And when the baby actually comes, then... Mom or dad's, you know, going around, they got this baby in a stroller or maybe in, in one of these little seats and, and uh, the person comes up and said, what is his name or what is her name? And you hope you guessed right. <laughs> Haven't you been there? Yep. Well, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. You, want to do, you don't want to have egg on your face, you know. You just want to offend them right off the bat. But we're really curious, what, what is the baby's name? And uh, when Jane and I found out that we were going to have the three children that we have had, we are very excited every time. Uh, two of them naturally won by adoption, but every time there's just this great excitement. Immediately, we began thinking about the names that we wanted to use. And we, we had a given. We had something that had to happen. Their initials had to be JMU. I don't know if you know that, but I'm John Mark Olm. And because she kept her maiden name, she's Jane Mead Olm. So we had JMU going. So that kind of said, it's going to have to be a JMU. And neither of us went to James Madison University, so it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> Although I wanted to put that on my license plate. I thought, that won't work, because everybody in Virginia will think it's just James Madison I'm talking about. No, it's not. So Josh comes along, and we name him Joshua Mark Olm, born June 5th, 1981. And Joshua, we knew, met Jehovah Saves. God Saves. We thought, what a great name. And then we had a second son four years later on August the 3rd, 1985, Joseph Michael Ohm. And Joseph means God will increase. And we're thinking, you know, okay, family's growing. We're getting more children. Uh, last, Joey only lived about three weeks. And so we went through this really, really hard time of accepting that and dealing with the death of our baby. And yet we saw God increasing even through that. And... Uh, you know, sometime later, very, very soon after that, we said, you know, he had a young life, he had a small life, but he really touched a lot of people in three weeks' time because through that, God did some amazing things and kind of grew us 
spiritually, increased our capacity for ministry, and we're able to minister to some other couples who have been through something like that, and so on. And so then we started an adoption process, which took three and a half years. And, and so in 1989, June 12th, Jenna Marie Ohm was born. And Jenna means small bird. I don't even remember knowing what that meant. We just like the name. But boy, does small bird, you know, that applies to our daughter because she's flitting all over the place, you know. She's doing all kinds of things. And we always thought if we could just channel that energy somewhere, and God has done that. I wish he was in here this morning because I was going to really make fun of her. But <laughs> she's over somewhere taking care of kids this morning here in the building. So this is neat how these names play out. You know, people do all kinds of funny things with names, don't they? Haven't you, haven't you known some, some children uh, that were named kind of funny? Unusual names, unusual spellings for common names. In order to make the child stand out in the world, sometimes they pick all biblical names, you know their family, so you got this whole lineup of all the prophets of Israel or something going on, and, and then Mark and Evie Pratt, you know, that we support up in Cleveland, they had two boys, and they named them Jonathan and David. What a great combination there, you know? They not only wanted them to be like these great biblical figures, but they wanted them to have this closeness as brothers, to be like best friends. And then recently they were able to adopt a little boy in Cleveland, his name's Cameron. That's not a biblical name. Kind of messed up the whole thing there. And yet God has the last laugh because he has really blessed them with that little guy and blessed their ministry in Cleveland. So uh, don't get all, you know, bottled up about how your names have to go in your family or anything. Well, maybe you've heard of some of the children whose names are funny. Apparently the parents didn't really think things through very much. And uh, they they didn't think about how the other kids were going to taunt them and make fun of them or whatever. I have two preacher friends up in Indiana and and, uh, Illinois. One's name is Harry Pitts. Why would somebody name your child Harry Pitts? There's another preacher, some of you know up there, his name is Ivan Oder. It's like, did you think about this before you named your child? (laughs) I heard about this couple down in Texas. They were the Hogg family, H-O-G-G. They had twin girls, and they named them Ima and Yura. I'm a hog and you're a hog. Why Why would you do that? <laughs> Come on now. I'm a hog, you're a hog. Well, in Jesus' case, his name was decided upon by someone else. Mary and Joseph didn't get to pick his name. God told them what name to use, and why is that? Well, it's obvious, because God was doing a lot prior to them coming on the scene. God was working for a long, long time to set up Jesus' birth so that when Jesus is born, his name's already picked out. A lot more is going on here than the normal births that happen 353,000 times a day in this world. Wow, what a number. Thought about that for a minute. That's a birth rate of four children per second. Woo. And so in this one birth, this unique birth, God was doing something amazing, something that that should draw the attention of the whole world, and ultimately, it really has. God was doing an amazing thing when this little boy named Jesus was born. And in the days before ultrasound, Jesus' earthly parents knew for sure that he was a boy. Mary even knew it before she conceived. Get your mind around that a little bit. You're going to have a son, 
and his name is going to be Jesus. Matthew and Luke's Gospels give us genealogies of Jesus' ancestors. Matthew traces Joseph's line from Abraham down to Joseph, even though Joseph was not actually Jesus' father. He's his legal father, his adoptive father, his stepfather. And and, uh, Luke traces a lot of the same, but he traces more into Mary's family. Mary's line, Luke chapter 3. He begins with Joseph and he goes backward all the way to Adam, the first man on this planet. Well, why did both of these gospel writers consider genealogies to be so important? Because to a Jewish person's perspective, a person's lineage was very important. And God wanted to trace Jesus' lineage back to David, king of Israel, and to Abraham, the father of faith. And so he did that so that, in Matthew's case, the Jews would know Jesus is who he's supposed to be. He's legit. He's of the royal line of David. And in Luke's case, Mary's legit. The mother of Jesus is legit. Often in that day and in this, a son is named after his father. In our day, we sometimes see three or four generations of the firstborn, kind of like that. So you got Thomas II, who's called Junior. Sometimes it's Thomas III, Thomas IV. But in this case, Joseph is told exactly what to call the baby, and it's not going to be named after the father, Joseph. It's going to be named after the real father, who is God. Let's turn to Matthew 1. Let's look at verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Three things I want you to pick out from Matthew's telling of this Christmas story. First of all, that Jesus' birth was natural, but is also supernatural. It's the most normal thing. But it's really abnormal, isn't it? It's just so astoundingly supernatural here. He was born in the usual human way, and yet he was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit inside a virgin girl named Mary. She was engaged to Joseph, who was uh, only willing to marry her after an angel appeared to him and confirmed and she didn't get pregnant by somebody else. She, she is expecting the child because of the Holy Spirit. Still, they did not come together as husband and wife until after Jesus was born. Mary's pregnancy was a typical one. She had to go through the normal nine months of body changes and mood swings and ultimately the pain of childbirth. What made it especially difficult for her and Joseph were the judgmental attitudes, the stares, the the criticisms, the comments, the questions that other people of their town certainly fired at them from time to time. 
who thought that her pregnancy was surely the result of sin. She and Joseph steeled themselves against these comments and hung as tightly to God as they possibly could, I'm sure. Well, in the end, towards the end of that pregnancy, they made this very difficult trip to Bethlehem to register for the Roman census, and there her son was born. It's interesting, read through Matthew. It's not their son, it's her son. Make sure you get that right. Jesus, the Son of God, was born in a stable because no rooms were to be had. It was a dark place, far less comfortable than she would have had at home. Their surroundings were crude, and yet the birth announcement was made by a thousand angels singing to a bunch of shepherds out on the hillside. Sometime later, perhaps days, weeks, or months, the wise men appeared, the magi, and they offered to them extravagant gifts no one would ever imagine would come to this normal baby boy in Bethlehem, born to this young Jewish couple. Jesus' birth was a very simple and common birth like any other baby being born in Bethlehem, and yet all of heaven took notice. Jesus' birth was natural yet supernatural, wasn't it? Second thing, Jesus' birth was the climax of thousands of years of preparation. Just looking at the names on the genealogy alone would give us the idea that God had been working a long time on this. A bunch of people are here. From Abraham to Joseph, Matthew tells us that there are 42 generations, groups, three groups of 14 generations each. And the first time God ever predicted someone like Jesus would come on the scene was way back there, way back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3. God told that Eve, Eve that her seed would crush the serpent's head. Someday, you know, this is going to be made right. And from then until Jesus' appearance, many prophets, priests, kings foretold his coming as God gave them wisdom and visions and revelations. There are over 300 messianic prophecies in the pages of the Old Testament. And all of them were fulfilled in this one man named Jesus. God continued to move steadily toward the fulfillment of his plan to redeem mankind, sometimes with man's help and sometimes in spite of man's sin and rebellion. You see in this list of genealogy, both, both Matthew and, and, and Luke, a bunch of scoundrels. See, a bunch of people that I wouldn't want to have in my genealogy, would you? But God's honest. God says, this is what happened. This is how it went down. This is what occurred. But here is the end. This is the end of the story. This is what I've been doing. This is what I've been working toward. Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus was the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Clear back when God created the world, He knew that Jesus was going to die for our sins so that we could go free. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that just doesn't that blow your mind? God knew. And so for thousands of years, He's preparing for this moment, when Jesus would come on the scene, hundreds of specific prophecies were given to give clues to Jesus' death, life, birth, all, all of that. And somehow, many of the Jews missed that. Jesus came, left for heaven, the church was started, and they're like, who was that? That certainly wasn't the Messiah we were looking for. Third thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus' birth was given to ordinary people like you and me. 
Joseph's just a carpenter in an obscure village called Nazareth. He's of a good line. He's of Abraham and King David's line. He's one of their descendants. He's a full-blooded Jew. But he was not royalty. He's just a common guy, but a guy with a good heart. And Mary. Mary was a young maiden, also of the line of David, but poor, ordinary. And yet there was something inside her that God recognized as very, very special. She was not sinless, but she was pure of heart. And she was someone who believed whatever God said, whether she understood it all or not. You know, how can this be? She said to the angel. But yet, whatever you say, God, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'll be part of. God chose to bless this engaged couple with his son, the Son of God. Both of them had to accept this incredible news at different points in time as the angel of God visited them separately. It took everything they had to believe that God was calling them to play such an important part in his redemption plan. And imagine they were as shocked as we would have been. God, you want me to do that? You want me to participate in that? You want me to be part of that? But God was saying, I've always used ordinary people. I've always used the common people. I've always used people that least expect they could be used. And now he uses Mary and Joseph to bring his son and our Savior into the world. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 says, But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. This amazing birth came to people as ordinary as you and me so that God would get the glory from first to last in Jesus' life. Well, the name Jesus means the same as the name Joshua, our firstborn. Did you know that? Both of them are the same name. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. Both of them mean God saves. He could have been born Eli, the son of Joseph, or Matthias, son of Joseph, something son of Joseph. Maybe a hundred other names could have been chosen for him, but the angel of God said very emphatically to Joseph, you will call him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. How appropriate was the name? Jesus, the Greek word, Jesus, corresponds to the Hebrew name, Yeshua. Both mean Jehovah saves, God saves. Yeshua is the Hebrew word for salvation. So there should have been no misunderstanding among the Jews what Jesus' name meant, what he was about, why he came. His very name carries the promise of God's salvation. Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, was a carpenter, as you know. Jesus followed in his earthly father's footsteps till he was 30 years old. Not until Jesus finally, uh, until then did Jesus finally launch out and begin what we call his public ministry, his ministry to bring the world back to God, to be the savior of the world. God was preparing Jesus' heart for the mission to which he was called. And even the Son of God, it took a while. God was preparing. God was getting ready. God was filling him. And the only childhood event we know about happened when he was 12 years old. Remember that? It's told in Luke chapter 2. After the feast, uh, 
uh, at this feast, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, had gone down there with the rest of the family to maybe the, the Passover, we don't know exactly, but to one of the big feasts in Jerusalem. And, and so it ended and they started home, expecting that Jesus was with the rest of the caravan somewhere. He was with the aunts and uncles or the cousins playing along the way, whatever kids would normally do. And so it wasn't until the end of the first night they realized, oh, he's not here. We left him back in Jerusalem. Did you ever leave your child at church before? We had a family do that one time. They had five kids, and they thought three of them rode with mom and two with dad. And about a half hour later, they said, are my kids still at church? <laughs> you know, it took them 30 minutes to figure out that two of them were missing. But, you know, or maybe they wanted them to be missing or something. I'm not sure, but we got them back. So they realize that Jesus is still back in Jerusalem. And, and so the next morning, they hightail it back there, and they're scouring all around the city. Where is he? You know, is he back over at Aunt Uncle so-and-so's house? No, no. Is he over there? No. They find that he's in the temple, and he's in a debate. He's in, a, in this session with the scribes and Pharisees. And they go in kind of in awe. This 12-year-old boy is wrangling with the leaders of the Jewish nation. Over finer points of the law, I suppose. And so Mary says to him, What are you doing, son? Where, where were you? Why, why weren't you with us? And he answers them at 12 years old. He says, Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus knew who his father was. Jesus knew even at 12 what his calling was. And yet the scriptures say that at that point he returns to Nazareth with them and he's an obedient to them. He continues to be subject to Mary and Joseph uh, for years after that, for 18 more years. And after Joseph's death, somewhere along the line, I assume he kind of took on the, the head of the family role, you know, and he kept things going and he kept the carpentry business going and he kept putting food on the table for his mother and his brothers and sisters. Some people don't think he had brothers and sisters, but scriptures say, yes, he did. At least two more brothers, at least a couple of sisters, maybe more than that. And so responsibilities weighed in, and he just kept growing. And finally, then at 30 years old, he launched out. Maybe when he realized they could make it on their own. Maybe one of the brothers had gotten old enough to take care of others. But I think more than that, the Holy Spirit said to him, it's time. It's time. Let's, let's go do this. Eighteen years as a carpenter had taught him a lot about building houses and furniture, but he was called to create and recreate people, not furniture. He came to change things for us, not just some physical thing in the world. Carpentry is a noble profession, but that's not why he came. He came to save the world. Jesus came not to save just his hometown, Nazareth, did he? He came not to just save his nation, Judea. He came to save the whole world, and he's been saving people ever since. Jesus was not named after Joseph. He was named after his father, Almighty God. His name means God saves. And his very name tells us his life's purpose, his life's mission. Would you please just say with me something you already know, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let me ask you three important questions, and then we'll be done. Number one, have you let Jesus save you? It's so important. So I, I, I could not overemphasize that. 
You know, if that's why he came, if that's his business, that's his mission, if that's why God prepared for thousands of years and from the creation of the world said he's going to be the lamb that will pay for the sins of the whole world, if that's what God's been doing, have you made that connection? Have you let him work his magic in your life? Have you let him redeem you? Have you let him transform you by his spirit? Because he wants to. That's why he came. Let Jesus into your heart this Christmas. If you've not do, done that, this is a perfect time for you to say, I'm here now, Lord, for you to save me and to change my life because that's why he came. So come to the Savior. Don't delay. Do it today. Do it this week. Secondly, if you're a Christian, if you're already following Christ, have you answered the higher calling that God has for you? You may make your life, your living a number of ways. But do you know that God has a higher purpose for you than just to make money? Just to put food on your table, just to take care of your family? Uh, you know, you can do that a lot of different ways. And, and you're gifted for that. And, and you have uh, special uh, abilities and skills that God wants to, to have you employ in that area. But beyond that, there is a higher calling. There's something you do that job for than other, other than money. Through Jesus' life and example, his whole family was called to a greater life and purpose. Ultimately, as you see in his ministry, you see Jesus and his brothers and sisters, they're gathering around him at first saying, you're crazy, what are you doing? Come back home. And then eventually they're coming to faith. Eventually they're coming to see, this isn't just my big brother. This is my Lord. So you hear about James in the book of Acts. And you hear about some of these other brothers and sisters and of Mary who follows him right to the cross. Who's there to see the resurrection. Because not, not just that she's his mom. She's a follower. And through Jesus' higher calling, through his mission, he saves his family. Isn't it high time that here at Christmas we try and do something like that with our families, that we try to influence them, that we try by our example, by our words, to, to just help people in our family come to know the Lord too. Third question, this Christmas, are you pointing people to Jesus? He's the star of this birthday celebration. He's the reason for the season, people say. Is Jesus the one that we're putting our children and grandchildren and other people, get that emphasis, emphasis on to Jesus, or is it Santa Claus, or is it the gifts, or is it the family times? You I mean, all of these can be fun things, but are you really pointing people to Jesus? Let me just share a couple ideas. Pray that God will help you do this, first of all, that God will help you transition, because maybe you're just so wrapped up in all the other stuff that it's hard for you to even see Jesus here. But pray that God would lead you, give you wisdom. Secondly, before you rush into opening all those gifts on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, would you just take a moment to, to pull out a Bible, gather your family together and re read from Luke chapter 2, maybe verses 1 through 20 about the, the birth of Jesus and pray a prayer of gratitude and say, God, we're so amazed that you would do this, that you would bring Jesus to earth. We will be eternally grateful to you for that. By the way, you can also teach your children what Jesus means. What, what's that name? Thirdly, would you be deliberate? 
Would you be intentional in teaching your children at Christmas that it's not about them? It's about Jesus. Show them by your life and your example, too, that it, that's true. You know, if they, they hear you talking about that, and yet everything you do is about the gifts, everything you do is about the, the celebration part of it, and they miss the point of Jesus, then, then the lesson is meaningless. It, it really won't, won't hit dirt. Maybe you need to pull out a nativity and talk through the whole story. Maybe you need to read a storybook that focuses on Jesus rather than, than on Santa Claus or a snowman or a donkey or, you know, whatever. You know, my wife Jane had an opportunity this week. I want to tell you very briefly about it, what happened. And uh, she doesn't really like stories being told about her, but I did get permission first. She's been a long-term sub for ESOL, which is English second language thing, for the last 12 weeks uh, over at Hayden Elementary, which is a public school by our house. And that was ending Friday. But early in the week, the team was getting together of all the first grade teachers, and she's, she's part of that as ESOL teacher in on the mix. And they're, they're planning out the last few days before Christmas holidays. And they were talking about these special things they'd had. They had somebody come in and teach the kids about Kwanzaa. And they had had a mom come in, Jewish mom, and she had come and taught the kids about Hanukkah. And so they went around from the, fi- the different five first grader classes, and they taught about these different things. And Jane just said, she's, she's not you know, the most forward person, but she just said, are we going to tell them about Christmas? Are we going to tell them the real reason for Christmas? Are we going to tell them the story of Jesus? And the other teachers said, we hadn't really planned to do that. He's going to read a story about a donkey. And Jesus said, what a perfect opportunity to tell them what some of us believe or what Christians believe. We have already told them what others believe. We're perfectly in our rights to tell this story. And they said to a person, good idea, let's do that. Well, they put it on to this one teacher to, to come up with that by Friday. And he was out of the uh, school on Thursday picking up his daughter from college or something. And Jane just emailed. She said, I've had these ideas, you know, following up to that. I have this story about the little drummer boy that tells the story of Jesus. It would be kind of this side thing, and yet it would clearly tell. And she said, i got this nativity set. You know, if you want to use, you could go through the different people, Mary, Joseph, the baby, the shepherds, the, the angels, all of that, and just show it to the kids, and that would be great. And then the guy responds says, great, you do that. <laughs> so it was Thursday night, she got everything ready. She went in there Friday, and she went from class to class of these first graders. She got out the nativity. She explained all the story. She told exactly what we believe happened there and why and who Jesus is and why God sent him. And then they read this story together, the little drummer boy, and in it has the song, pum 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 And so she had the kids singing with her all the way through it. By the end of the day, she, her, her voice is hoarse, you know, because she's trying to lead all these kids through that. But she said it was just amazing. The kids really got into it. They loved singing. They loved hearing the story. And she enjoyed, one thing especially i got to tell you, she says, in the story, the name of Jesus appears several times. And she said, I'd be reading the story, and I'd just wait. And she'd say, and then they had the baby, and the kids would say, Jesus. All these first graders are saying the name of Jesus. She says, boy, that was fun. She said, we're in a public school, and all the kids are saying Jesus. <laughs> Later, end of the 
one of those class sessions, a little boy came up and he said, Miss Alm, you mean Jesus is real? There is power in the name of Jesus. Peter said in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Paul said that someday every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is power in the name of Jesus. Acts 3.16, Peter explained to the people why a crippled man had been healed. He said, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know is made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. John wrote in John 20, 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other things, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. There is power in the name of Jesus. Paul told his brothers and sisters at Colossae, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. There is power in the name of Jesus. And this Christmas... I want you to speak about Jesus. I want you to tell about Jesus. I want you to tell those children around you and those adults that don't know. Is Jesus real? That he is very real and that he has a plan for their life as well as yours. And that he came to save us. Let's determine this Christmas that we will point our family and our neighbors and everyone else to Jesus, the only Savior that we will ever have. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your, your word. I thank you for the demonstration of your love that came in a baby named Jesus. You have been preparing things for so many years before that that we can't even count those years. You have been working through so many different circumstances and situations that we are amazed. And it all culminated in this one little baby named Jesus. God saves. Help us to tell that story this Christmas. Help us to point people to Jesus. That they too could be saved by the Savior you sent. In Jesus' name, amen.